Oh God, we know it's true. This most difficult of all subjects in our heart of hearts, it's difficult because we already know what's truth. And through the drama and the scripture and now the song, the quiet but repeated appeal, guard your heart. Dear Father, somehow you must teach us how. And so in the word that you send to us, let it be clear enough for us to know how to guard our hearts. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray together. Amen. Malcolm Muggridge, the celebrated English journalist, once wrote this line. Today, people have sex on their minds, which, if you think about it, is a strange place to have it. So where do you have sex, huh? We now live in a culture that is utterly saturated with it. Sex has, in fact, become what America has on its media mind around the clock over and over and over again. You can't open a magazine. You can't turn on a radio. You can't watch television. You can't go to a movie. You can't even drive down the highway anymore. Sex is literally, is this true? It is literally everywhere. Come on, is it true? <laughs> Sex in the City. This award-winning HBO titillation television. Sex in the city, sex in the country, sex in outer space, sex in cyberspace. Sex is virtually now everywhere. I mean, it is so bad today that you, you, you even come to church and you have sex. What is this? What has the world come to? You thought it would be a haven here. I'll tell you what the world has come to, ladies and gentlemen. It has come to a very pathetic position. If the following conversation is any reflection on the social, sexual reality of life in the United States. I want, I want you to please listen in with me on this conversation. They just came out with this. I got it this last week on Rutgers State University of New Jersey's webpage. This consortium is actually headquartered at Rutgers. It's called the National Marriage Project. And for the last, oh, no, three or four years, they've been coming up with what they call the State of Our Unions. I like that. The State of Our Unions 2000, The Social Health of Marriage in America. Now, the reason I want to go to this report, and it's a thick one, I want to go to it because they include some fascinating conversations they had with 10 focus groups composed of heterosexual young Americans between the ages of 21 and 29, located in five metropolitan uh, centers in the United States, northern New Jersey, Atlanta, Dallas, Chicago, not to be left out, and Los Angeles. They subtitled the report, Sex Without Strings, Relationships Without Rings, Today's Young Singles Talk About Mating and Dating. I want you to listen to this, just, just for a moment. can't read it all to you, but uh, hear a line or two as they interview these focus groups. The mating culture for today's 20-somethings is not oriented to marriage as it has been in times past, nor is it dedicated to romantic love. Based on the reports of these non-college, okay, so these are not college students, non-college singles, it is perhaps best described as a culture of sex without strings 
and relationships without rings. The men and women, this is fascinating, in these focus groups rarely volunteer the word love or use the phrase falling in love. Instead of love, they talk about sex and relationships. This double language reflects the two separate spheres of unwed coupling. Sex is for fun, they told the interviewers. It is one of the taken-for-granted freedoms and pleasures of being young and single. Both men and women regard casual sex as an expected part of the dating scene. Only a few take a moralistic stand against it. Both men and women also agree that casual sex is no-strings-attached sex. It requires no commitments beyond the sexual encounter itself, no ethical obligation beyond mutual consent. You want to do it, I want to do it, let's do it. When men and women hook up for sex, they say, it's assumed that one's partner is likely to lie about past sexual history. Accordingly, the conventional wisdom is trust no one. You can't trust anybody, the conventional wisdom. Indeed, these men and women see lying, cheating, and dumping as unremarkable behavior in casual sexual hookups. For the young singles in this study, however, sex isn't entirely carefree. The threat of HIV AIDS looms large over the dating scene. Everyone is scared of AIDS. However, although both men and women fear AIDS, they do not take equal responsibility, responsibility for protecting against it. These young women say that they're the ones who must take the initiative and responsibility for protection. If we don't insist, they say, the guys won't voluntarily use a condom. The men seem to agree that the responsibility for protection belongs to women. Moreover, although both men and women talk to talk about using protection, at least a few admitted that this might be less than a less than accurate description of their real behavior. You know none of us follow these rules, one young man says, after listening to other men's testimonies of regular condom use. A woman in another group acknowledges, when you're drunk, you'll let him do anything. These working singles say they are most likely to go to clubs to socialize with similar age peers. However, both men and women, listen to this, both men and women see the club scene as a place for drinking fun and casual sexual hookups rather than for finding a serious love interest. Men especially say they go to the clubs for easy sex, and when they get it, they have no more responsibility to the woman. As one young man explains, you've already had your fun. The men have contempt for the women they meet at a club. You don't go to, to a club to find a wife, one young man says. Another puts it bluntly, club girls are trash. Women have similarly low opinions of the club scene and the men they find there. The men lie, they say, and they're only looking for sex. Now, get this. In seeking a relationship, these young men and women say you should look for a partner through church, friends, or school. Getting into a relationship usually means postponing sex until you know you get to know each other, according to both men and women in this study. However, according to some of the men, sex isn't put off for long. They say that sex on the third date, after a couple of weeks of meeting, is typical for a more serious relationship. If you wait too long, says one, they'll think you're not interested. What is this thing called? Sex without strings, relationships without rings. Sounds like something hissing off the forked tongue of the serpent in the garden, now doesn't it? <laughs> I want you to open your Bible with me, please, to one of the truly greatest sex-on-your-mind stories in all of history. I mean, this one, this is a truly great drama, one of the great, greatest dramas of all. Open your Bible, please, to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39. We'll all go back to the book of beginnings. While you're going to Genesis 39, let me just set the table for a moment. 
with you so that we'll be ready for 39. In Genesis 1, first chapter of Genesis, you know God invents sex. Is that true or false? Yay, he did. The Creator bestows upon the newly created human race a stunningly powerful and passionate in the image of God likeness that no other creature enjoys. Hey guys, look, sex is unique, a unique gift to planet Earth. There is, you think about it, there isn't an angel in all the universe that will be able to do what this new order of life is about to be able to do, to put it in the blunt language code of our day, have sex. Angels can't have sex, but humans can. Now it's true, the birds, the bees, and the animals all do it, but no order of life will be able to share such an intelligent, passionate, mutual love expression as a sexual relationship between a man and a woman married together for life. The old, that old wily serpent. That old serpent called the devil. He has finally figured it out. These beings will eventually fill the void that his own rebellion in heaven has created. Lucifer realizes, wait a minute, this gift of sex, this is a gift of God himself. He suddenly, it dawns on him through the miracle of genetics, they're going to be able to procreate like the Creator. And they will be able to make little juniors and little sissies running around looking just like them, like God just created Adam and Eve in His own image. And Lucifer, with fury, realizing that this will be a powerful link to the Creator of the universe, determines in the very beginning, He determines, I have got to destroy this connection with that Creator. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. Come on, you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to go to the seminary to figure out that, there, that the two gifts, count them please, the two gifts that have come out of the garden after the fall have been the object of the blitzing, burning artillery of hell because both gifts remind us of the Creator. Gift number one, the seventh-day Sabbath. Gift number two, sex. The two gifts that will tell us the truth about the Creator He has set out to obliterate and destroy. So, hey, Joseph, don't be surprised, my man. Hey, you, sir, you, madam, me. Hey, let us not be surprised with all the withering fire that hell will bring against our own sexuality. The table is set. We now know what Lucifer is after. Let us go to Genesis 39. See, you were going there while I was talking. Now I've got to go. Genesis 39. All right, let's pick it up. Verse 1. I'm in the New Revised Standard Version. Now Joseph, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, now Joseph was taken down to Egypt, sold as a slave by the other eleven, by the way. Sad, sad story. Other ten, rather. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. Hold it right there. Stop the video. You know what? I had a young adult in this congregation. He was here in First Church. I didn't mention his name. But he called me up two weeks ago. He said, Dwight, I'm not bragging, but I've got to tell you this. All summer you've been teaching us to pray the prayer of Jabez. Lord, expand our territory for you. He said, my company, where I'm a controller, the owner lives in Grand Rapids. He came down three weeks ago, and the, the owner, after walking through the, the company with me, said, you know something? 
I want to tell you, I believe that God has blessed my business because you are here in this company. I want to thank you for the prayers you pray for my institution. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something. This is not a fluke. What happened to Joseph? It really does happen. When a young adult says, okay, Jesus, you are number one in my life. Christ can move you anywhere he wishes, and he can turn everything you touch into gold for your organization. I mean, God does it. Now, he may not do it just the way he did with Joseph, but he will bless you. By the way, that's not just for young, not for young adults. That is a wonderful assurance for not-so-young adults as well. You work in a hospital, God can turn everything you touch into his glory. I love this. Man. Yeah, verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and, the, and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So, verse 4, Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. He, Potiphar, made him, Joseph, overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had from the time that he made him overseer in, house, in his house and over all that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. So, verse 6, he left all that he had Wow, he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and with him there, he had no concern for anything but the food he ate. You have everything under your control. Just make sure I get my meals. That's all I ask. You've got it all. It's all under your leadership. God honors his forever friends. Everything Joseph touches turns to success. But, but uh, come on, don't, don't, don't get waylaid here. This is not the story. The plot now thickens. Come on, let's go. Verse 6. We just read the first part of verse 6. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Now go to the last half of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome and good-looking. Twice earlier in the book of Genesis, two women had been singled out and noted for their natural beauty. Sarah and Rebecca. And by the way, both women, because of their beauty, are subject to unwanted advances of men who were not their husbands. Now for the third time, somebody is singled out for his beauty. Oh, it's not a woman. It's a man this time who will also experience the same sexual advance. Hey, come on. I need to pause right here because you need to be reminded should you be endowed like those two women and Joseph with an external physical comeliness or attraction? Hey, come on, sweetie. You need to be reminded that to whom much is given, much is required. You're in charge of your beauty. Dr. Laura, have you heard of Dr. Laura? Her book on the Ten Commandments. I was reading the chapter on the Seventh Commandment this week. One of her listeners wrote in to Dr. Laura, Laura Schlesinger. Through my married life, I've been attractive enough to get serious looks. Okay, look, she's being honest. Huh? I've gotten serious looks. I've been careful of how I dress. The words of my dad to his four daughters come back to me. Don't advertise unless you have something to sell. I want that to just sink into the residence of Lampson Hall right now. Don't advertise unless you have something to sell. I'm telling you, woman, I thank God for your attractiveness, but that attractiveness has to be managed or you are in deep trouble. Don't, don't advertise unless you have something to sell. She goes on, that scared me, end quote. Good. And by the way, sir, that goes for you too. The record reads, and Joseph was handsome 
and good-looking, which did not escape the wandering eyes of Mrs. Potiphar. Wow, now we're into the plot. Verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie, lie with me. I want you to note this, please. That temptation would actually require two lies. Two lies. To lie down with her and then to lie about it with her. Always remember, the temptation, come lie with me, always requires two lies. It's the nature of sin. It always compounds itself if you let it in. Verse, 39, uh, verse 8, uh, just read the first four words. But he refused, which is actually three. <laughs> hey, look, I didn't take math in college. What do you think? I'm supposed to know all this stuff? They don't tell you how to count words when you're in the pulpit. They just say, throw a number out. They won't catch it. <laughs> but he refused. In a Nike world that chants, just do it, just do it, just do it, Joseph just said no. You know what? <laughs> because just say no is the most powerful human response possible in the face of sexual temptation, whether you are 16 or 66. It is really, it boils down to just say no. Forget Nike. Say no. Which doesn't mean, by the way, that the serpent will take no for an answer. Not initially, anyway. <laughs> oh, verse 8. We'll get beyond those three words here. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, with me here, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my hand. Put the pause button on again. Gentlemen, mark it down. This is truly a wonderful and liberating way to negotiate your way through life if you will keep reminding yourself everything you have has actually been entrusted to you by your capital M master. No, no, no thing, no one belongs to you. He, he said, you know what, boy, I trust you. I trust you. You know, if I walked around and I thought, God, trust me right now. Whoa, if you walked around and thought that way, hey, it might actually shift the paradigm for us with some of the temptations we have to grapple with. By the way, whether you're a man or a woman, what better way to negotiate your, your way through temptation than say, hey, wait, wait, I can't do this. He has trusted me with what belongs to him. Sexual temptation, mark it down, is a deceptive effort to entice you to misuse or damage what belongs to the master. It doesn't even belong to you. But that's the whole trick. Get her to do it. Get him to use it. It's not yours. It belongs to my capital M master. And by the way, Joseph says, let me just tell you about your husband. He goes on here. What is this? Verse 9. He says here, oh, speaking of your husband, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. Do you understand this, lady? You are his, not mine. You're the only thing he's kept back from me. Well, he ought to. You don't belong to me. He's very clear on ownership. Very clear. 
He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Which being interpreted means, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against my capital M master? I cannot sin against him. You know what, folks? Joseph is utterly clear. Everything belongs to him. I belong to him. He trusts me. And lady, listen to me, lady. Read my lips. I trust him. I belong to him. You see, Joseph has discovered the powerful relational truth about sin. Sin is anything or anyone that threatens my forever friendship with God. Anything. That's why Joseph doesn't say, Oh, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against you, Mrs. Potiphar? How can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? No, 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 no. He didn't say, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against me? He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Sin always is what comes between you and your forever friendship with God every single time. Absolutely unequivocal, Joseph is. I cannot do this. I cannot. He trusts me. I trust him. I cannot let him down. And so temptation is forced to leave for a while. Because with Joseph and you, it is like it was with Jesus. Take a look at this. Luke chapter 4, verse 13, NIV. When the devil had finished these three, the three temptations in the wilderness, he left him until an opportune time. Come on, guys. Get it straight. Temptations, sexual or otherwise, are never one-night flings. Say no today and he'll be back tomorrow. Say no tomorrow and she will be back the next day. You know why? Because God has created you with the gift of freedom. That's why he's given. He said, look, I want you to be free to say yes as well as free to say no. I mean, what kind of a relationship is it where I only make you free to say no? I have to make you free to say yes. So I'm going to let them keep coming. Boom, boom, boom. They're going to keep coming because every day you're free. If you wish to back out, you're free. Now, it's true. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Did we read that text a moment ago? Oh, can you find 1 Corinthians 10, 13? Let's put it up on the screen. I think I skipped it in my notes, but I want you to see this. Look, look what God is saying here. No testing or no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond your strength, but will with the testing or the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Gentlemen and ladies, no temptation comes to you, but that God has not first checked out. Hey, he can do it. He can make it through that temptation. God checks it out in advance. You're not going to let it come. If God believes that this temptation will overwhelm you, get it straight. You will never face that temptation, ever. Only the ones that you are provided a way of escape will be allowed to come to you. God is so committed to our free choice. He allows the temptations to return, giving us the glorious opportunity of proving to the underworld that you and he, you and I, are indeed his forever friends. He said, hey, hey, what do you think about Job, huh? Can you believe this, Job? What a friend. You can't get him, can you? What do you think about my man Joseph? Isn't he something? Which is why the serpent returns. Oh, boy, he keeps coming back. He returns the next day in the seductive figure-eight form. Of Mrs. Potiphar, here it comes, verse 10. And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, incessant, 
Day after day, he would not consent to lie beside her or to be with her. Hey, have you heard of Jim Carrey? Isn't he the actor in Hollywood? Jim Carrey. I mean, some say he's the man with a thousand faces. You don't like that face? Peel it off. You don't like that face? Peel it off. The man with a thousand faces. I'm telling you what, ladies and gentlemen, Lucifer is the man, count them, with 10,000 faces, which is why he can show up at your door stunningly dressed in a skirt. How do you do that? He can do it. He can show up at your door dressed in a suit. He can show up at your door dressed in a bathing suit. Don't give me this little rubbish about, I always get the Sports Illustrated Swimming Suit Edition. That edition has nothing to do with sports, nothing to do with suits, and everything to do with sex. That's all that issue is for. He can show up at your door in a bathing suit. Guess what? This guy has so many faces. He can show up at your door with nothing on at all. He can peel off faces and put on faces so rapidly that he can catch you off your guard, catch your eye, hold your gaze, and boom, spring that deadly trap. That's all he needs. He needs you to hold on for one second. And by the thousands and millions, men and women are ensnared, chasing skirts, chasing suits, chasing skin. But what is so killing? If you would only stop long enough to rip off that rubber face from that skirt, rip off that rubber face from that suit, rip off that rubber face from that skin. If you would peel the face off, you would be gazing. You would take off the mask of a demon. She is no longer blonde. Her eyes are filled with the hatred of hell. And he grins that sneer, I was here for you. Come on, let's shift the paradigm. Every temptation, to, every sexual temptation is a demon with a plastic mask, and if you could rip the mask off, I promise you, it is his hellish eye sneering at you and saying, come on, I have you now. I tell you what, we would all would think twice. Would we not? If we remembered that temptation before us was nothing but the devil masqueraded in the clothes or skin of a human. By the way, she is not the devil. She may be as innocent as heaven itself, but the devil takes that moment and comes to you. Don't you blame her. Don't you blame him. He can put any face on he wishes and then peel it off once you're caught. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. And no wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light or as a brunette or a blonde or black ebony hair. Genesis 39, verse 10. And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not consent to lie beside her or to be with her. In fact, can we just add the word even there? Or even to be with her. Because listen carefully now. Sexual temptation, with sexual temptation, there are times when you cannot even afford the proximity. You, can be, you cannot be near it. You cannot be near her. You cannot be near him. And by the way, if it is happening to you in a workplace or a school place, it is called sexual harassment. And every law of the land will rise up to defend your right to work or study on this campus unmolested by that tempter. In a Christian institution, 
in any institution, it is a matter of zero tolerance. And when a manager or an administrator or a leader protects a sexual harasser, he or she is as culpable as the attacker. If you're being harassed, go immediately to your superior. If you don't get help there, go to the next superior. You go till you get help. You go, girl. Sexual innuendos and temptations are bad enough in the real world without having to face them in the work world or the school world or the church world. He would not consent to be with her because demons do not wear only warm human flesh masks. They also, get this, get this, they also don the masks of virtual reality. Demons actually peer from out behind a monitor. If you could peel that virtual plastic rubber mask off, it's the same eyes. It's the same sneer. Gotcha. Demons don their virtual masks and peer back from slick, shiny, full-color magazine racks and pages. Pornography is fast becoming the greatest moral killer of men in America and throughout the world. It's now the killer of boys as well. It's not only the sexploitation of women, and I know the feminist movement says, oh, come on, sexploitation of women. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now the sexploitation of men. Somebody's making money on this industry, and it isn't you. I have listened. Hear me now. I have listened to the anguish, cries, and tears of men, young and not young, in my office. As they have wept, some have fallen to the floor sobbing because they are held by a sexual addiction that does not let them go. You are playing with fire and it will kill you. Rip that rubber mask off. Take a look into those eyes. They're not brown eyes. They're not green eyes. They're not blue eyes. They are death eyes. And they watch you 24 hours. The same internet that we are seizing to reach the world for Jesus Christ through areyousearching.com has been hijacked by the darkest powers of hell to disseminate pornography privately, confidentially, incessantly, daily, nightly to lonely, addicted men and boys the world over. U.S. News and World Report, I'll put the cover on, this, on the screen for you, just came out here one month ago, the dark side of the internet. They tell a story in here of a young man named Kevin. He met his wife on the internet. They fall in love. They get married in Idaho. He's working as, a man, as an administrator in a hospital. He gives his testimony here. The wife notices at night when he comes home, he goes into the, the little study and he closes the door. He's there for a long Once in a while he'll call her to come in. Hey, take a look at this. And he will show her something exceptionally wild. And it will disgust her. And she will walk away. She says, well, he probably just happened onto it. But then he found out, because he was working the night shift at the hospital, that the library has a computer under lock and key. He got the master key, and he would end up spending eight hours of his shift in front of that screen, so addicted to pornography he became. Finally, the, the administrators came to him and they said, hey man, we, we, we have some real problems with that computer in the library. Would you check out and see what's happening? And it scared him to death, and for a couple months he stayed away. But it was just long enough for them to put monitor cameras hidden in that library, and they caught him again. They confronted him, said, you're going to take three days paid leave. We're going to put you in front of a counselor, and you are accountable to us and your wife for the rest of your life. 
He says in this testimony, I can never again alone go near a computer. That's what it means. He did not consent to even be with her. You have to make a choice. You can't be alone. Not with that. It's your Waterloo if you are. Some of you know of what I speak. Which is why television can be transformed into a rubber mass demon. In fact, let me put this up here. Psalm 101, verse 3. Take a look at this. I will not set before my eyes anything that is base. TV. I mean, what is, what is the deal with television? It is deadly in what it does not portray. Thus it draws our minds into that dangerous fill-in-the-blanks kind of imagination game. But hear this, even more subtle and dangerous than te- is television's powerful ability to neutralize morality and glorify immorality. It's a subtle effort to break down what you stand for. <laughs> Deceiving us, isn't this something? Deceiving us into thinking that everybody's doing it when two-thirds of high school girls in the United States are virgins. And three-quarters of high school high achievers have had sex with nobody. The best kids in this land. Three-quarters of the high achievers never had sex. Well, you would think everybody's doing it when you watch TV. If I were the devil and I was determined to destroy sexual purity in the human race, I would make it a laughable comedy on TV where friends all sleep with each other. Which is why the psalmist exclaims, Psalm 50, verse 18, you make friends with a thief when you see one, and we'll just add the words, on the screen, and you keep company with adulterers when you watch them for entertainment. Why allow yourself to become any more vulnerable to sexual temptation than you already are? The record reads, he would not consent to even be with her. No way. I will not be alone with you. Well, we must let the story now move to its climax. A very disappointing climax, by the way, for Mrs. Potiphar. Genesis 39, verse 11. One day, however, when he went into the house to do his work, and while no one else was in the house, she caught hold of his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran Outside, Ladies and gentlemen, mark it down. Therein lies the critical and fatal difference between the temptation of Joseph and the temptation of David. Because what we're really experiencing here today is the tale of two temptations. Joseph the slave with Mrs. Potiphar and David the king with Bathsheba. You think about it. Identical temptation with two diametrically opposed responses. Both women are married in both temptations. Both women were available, one because she offered and the other because he asked. Both men had the opportunity to walk away from that temptation, though the one for whom the circumstances were more difficult since he was a slave was the only one who, in fact, did walk away. The one for whom it was toughest walked away. Both men, the slave and the king, were given the glorious opportunity to prove their forever friendship with the very same God, but only one of them stood. The other fell. Why? I'm going to give it to you right now. This is the critical, essential difference. Here it is. One fled, the other fed. It is the difference between sexual victory and sexual defeat today. One flees and he overcomes. The other feeds 
and he is overcome. And don't you tell me, Dwight, please tell me, what does it mean to feed? You know. That's why Jesus' words are such a dire warning on the Sermon on the Mount. Take a look at this, Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart because he is feeding instead of fleeing. One fled, the other fed. You know, when I was a boy, I learned a song. Some of you learned the song, Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, and dare to make it known. You remember that? But I never remember a song ever singing about Joseph. Did you ever hear a song about Joseph? I tell you what, we need a dare to be a Joseph kind of song. Maybe one of you sitting here will write it for us. Because I'll tell you, hands down, I'd rather be like Joseph than David, wouldn't you? Come on, wouldn't you? Yeah. What made the difference? I want to end with a cryptic clue found in the dying words of Joseph's father. Genesis 49, turn there, this is our last. Genesis 49. Jacob is on his deathbed. The boy and the father have been reunited. Hallelujah, what a wonderful ending to this tragic story. Jacob summons his 12 boys and he's going to give a dying patriarch's blessing on them all. I want you to catch what happens, what he says about Joseph. You see, in Genesis 39, it tells us what Joseph fled from. But Genesis 49 tells us what Joseph fled to. And we need to know the two in order to do the from. You've got to know the two. And the two is right here. Who did he flee to? Pick it up, verse 22, Genesis 49. Joseph is a fruitful bough, <clears throat> a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers fiercely attacked him. Oh, my, did she ever. Paul talks about Ephesians 6. Beware the fiery darts of the devil. The archer. See, that's the big A archer. The archers fairly attacked him. They shot at him and pressed him hard. Yet his bow remained taut and his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Ladies and gentlemen, mark it down. Yes, Joseph fled from the wife of his master, but the record is clear. He fled to the God of his father. Hallelujah. To the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Hands one day, by the way that would be outstretched on Calvary's tree. The nail-scarred hands of the man Christ Jesus, who himself knew the full fury of sexual temptation, Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every point like as we are, yet without sin. Come on, guys, just think. Ladies, please, you don't think that the serpent, who for millennia now has been raging against human sexuality, you think he's going to be, oh, well, don't touch Jesus in his sexuality. Leave him alone. Don't leave him. Don't touch him. Christ must have experienced the full frontal assault of all the demons of hell against his, sexu his male sexuality. But in a gripping symbol of sexual victory for every fallen man and woman and boy and girl, I remind you, Jesus hung on Calvary, stripped to his naked, bare skin. He hung there naked. You, we couldn't find an artist that has portrayed Jesus hanging naked, so we can't put a picture up showing him hanging naked. Nobody would dare portray it. His entire anatomy was exposed to the gaping, taunting mob so that every embattled human heart could know that he redeemed even our fallen sexuality. Wow. I want to say this modestly, but I want to be just as clear as I know how to be. The next time you happen to look at your own sexual anatomy, 
whatever your age, whatever your gender, the next time you look, remember, Christ bore our sexual woundedness upon his own body unto death. And because Jesus died to sexual temptation, you and I might live with sexual victory. In Christ, at Calvary, he did it for us. He took our sexuality in front of a gaping universe and he hung there naked, covering it all. Therein lay the victory for Joseph, and therein lies the victory for you and me too. To the temptresses, lie with me, comes Jesus nail-scarred, flee to me. And when you do, I promise you, the mighty hands of the mighty one of Jacob and Joseph will deliver you too. Amen. But I can't. I can't. Sermon ends there, but I can't stop there. We have two more sermons that are going to be very specific, and it's going to be a painful one next week, dealing with human sexuality. But I cannot wait till next Sabbath to bring a word of hope to those who right now are saying, hey, wait a minute, hold it, hold it. What if, unlike Joseph, I've already fallen? Look, I've already fallen. I, I have already failed in my sexual journey. I'm like David. You preached about the wrong one to me. I'm not Joseph. I've been feeding instead of fleeing. What do I do? I want to end with this. David was a broken man. If you have never fallen, my friend, don't take comfort from the story of David. Hang with Joseph. Because it is an awful life, even for a king. David, broken and shattered, hallelujah, repented with tears and confession. And we have today beautiful, touching, and tender Psalm 51, the prayer he composed upon his repentance. Now, I want you to catch this. Some of you need to listen very carefully now because God gave to David a new virginity. Watch this. The promise is in, is in the prayer. Watch this, Psalm 51, just two lines, verse 7 and verse 9. It's your promise, sir. It's your promise, madam. David cries out, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me, O oh God, create a clean heart and put a new and right spirit within me. I'm telling you, mark it down, ladies and gentlemen. In that prayer is the promise, a brand new, clean, forgiven heart. It is the heart of a new sexual virgin. You get that heart. If you come to this Jesus, you start over. In fact, oh, this is, this is, oh. Steps to Christ, page 62, if you give yourself to Him and accept Him as your Savior, hallelujah, then sinful as your life may have been, for His sake you are accounted righteous. Hold on, it gets better. Christ's character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned. God looks at you and He says, we have a virgin here now, don't we? Wow. For every broken and shattered life, for every smeared and sullied heart, the gospel of Calvary says, flee to me, and I will make you a brand new virgin again. 
I will bury your past. I will never bring up your past to you. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter how you lived in college. Doesn't matter how you lived in your middle life. Doesn't matter how you live in your senior citizen years. If right now you come to him, he says, I will give you a virgin heart, clean, pure, as if you never sexually sinned in your entire life. Hallelujah. Jesus' death for us is that promise if we will ask Him. Lie with me, she may still be calling for you. Flee to me, He is still calling for you. Follow the example of Joseph and David, and you too are accepted by God as if you had never sinned. And that, my friends, is the best news of all for all our sexuality. Now I say, Amen. What do you say? Amen. Let us stand as we pray. Oh, Jesus, our Redeemer, man of men, God of all gods, Lord of lords, Holy Christ, hanging naked before us on Calvary's summit with the quiet, broken, sobbing assurance that you have taken our sexual fallenness to death. Oh, Jesus, for every man here who needs a new virgin heart, for every woman here who needs a new Virgin Spirit, Holy Christ, listen carefully now. He is calling to you. She weeps to you, Master. Grant to her what you gave to David. And from this time forth, let us all live like Joseph, who was like Jesus, who is our forever friend and Savior. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.